Welcome to Writer Types, the podcast all about crime and mystery fiction. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon. Tell him who's on the show, Steve. Well, today on the show, we make sure to avoid the questions author Attica Locke doesn't want to answer. I am feeling quite litigious all of a sudden. <laughs> author Mark Haskell-Smith tells us why he agreed to come on Writer Types. I'm just sort of mentally ill. And Frank Zafiro explains why he co-wrote three novels with Eric. The guy pointed a gun at me and scared the shit out of me. All that, plus a trio of authors from the land down under, book reviews, and a very short story. But first, Steve, as we head into fall, it's a really busy time for both of us, right? Uh, absolutely. We're going to be posting this episode on Monday and then Wednesday of next week on September 27th. We are doing a crime quiz live at the last bookstore in Los Angeles. Those are always fun. We had such a blast the first time we did it. Yeah, and this time around, we're really thrilled to have Nadine Netman, Jordan Harper, and Harley Jane Kozak as our guests. And we're doing another crime quiz live at BoucherCon in Toronto on Friday the 13th. That's going to be a scary one. And I'm really thrilled because we have an American, a Canadian, a Brit, and whatever the hell you and I are. And that's in addition to another noir at the bar that we're doing up in Northern California and a couple of other readings that we have coming up this fall. So it's a busy time to be you and I. Yes, it is. And I will also be at Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee in November. I'm so sorry I'm going to miss that with you, Steve, and with the Malmans who are going to be there also. But you and I will be together at BoucherCon in Toronto, Canada, where it turns out we are both nominated for an Anthony Award. So congratulations. Well, thank you, Eric. And you're up for Best Paperback Original for Leadfoot. Yes. And Best Anthology for the excellent collection Unloaded, which you edited. And which you have a story inside. So uh, I guess that's a, sort of a nomination for both of us on that one. Steve, of course, you're nominated in the Best Novella category for your novella Crosswise, which is excellent. I can highly recommend. And I am rooting for you. Does that mean I can count on your vote? I didn't say that. I said I'm rooting for you. Well, I'm just excited because we are absolutely going to be recording from the Anthony Awards brunch at the moment that you and I might win or most likely will lose. So <laughs> next month, listeners will get to hear our screams of joy or our tears of sorrow. <laughs> be honest, if I lose, will you console me or are you just going to immediately mock me? <laughs> I may rush the mic and take it over and have a Kanye moment. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. I fully support this. I will not do the same for you, though. <laughs> I know, Eric. <laughs> I know. Who's first in the interview chairs today, Steve? First up is Mark Haskell-Smith, whose comic crime novel Salty was recently made into the film Gunshy, starring Antonio Banderas. We asked him what it was like to take a novel to the big screen. You know, it was a very peculiar experience uh, because I did it 10 years ago, right? So when the book first came out, the director came to me and said, I, I really like this book, you know, uh, but I want to do it independently and I want you to write it, So, but I don't have any money. And the thing is, I said, well, I want a pinata filled with uh, Spanish doubloons or Krugerrands. And the director said, okay. And then the next day, a guy knocked on the door and handed me a magnum of Patron Gold tequila. <laughs> And then I was like, oh, fuck, I got to write this thing now. So the actual experience of it was really fun because uh, you've written the book and the book is done, right? It's like, that's my version. 
So I could play around and do like a version that could be the director's version. So it was kind of like retelling the story and revisiting characters who I really liked, but also playing with it in a different way. You know, everyone always has something to say about a book they love when it makes it to the big screen, like, oh, they left this part out or they didn't do that part right. But you got to be the architect of your own adaptation. So what's the story behind the change from the book where the main character's wife gets kidnapped in Thailand to then the movie, which is set in South America? So much stuff happens. It's completely out of your control. I think like a month before we were going to shoot or two months there were riots in Bangkok and it became like a security risk for the insurance, the bonding company. So then um, Antonio Banderas was like, well, I just did this movie in Chile with this whole company that they provide everything. Let's do it there. And so the director and the producers looked into it and they were like, yeah, I guess we're just change everything to Chile. There you go. <laughs> South America. I mean, it was really because of that. I mean, everyone wanted to do it in Thailand. We were set to do it in Thailand. And then, you know, and I think some of it is like you have big stars and things like that. And their managers suddenly go, well, I don't want you caught up in a riot. You need managers to tell you that? <laughs> uh, yeah, they're actors, man. Come on. <laughs> uh, so spoiled. How did Antonio Banderas get involved with the project? We had the budget and then you have to go through the thing of finding stars. And, you know, for a while it was like... Nicholas Cage was interested in doing it. And then maybe it was Pierce Brosnan and, you know, it goes through this thing and it just, it's like, I don't know. It's like trying to go on a date with a glacier, you know, just like nothing happens. <laughs> it just like days and days go years and years go by and like, did it move? Did, you know, we have the money. And um, I think someone finally said, uh, what about Banderas's manager read it? I think, and was like, hey, this could be good for him. He likes music. So then once he got involved, it was like it happened pretty fast. Of course, every writer wants to see their book make it to the big screen. I think most people don't realize that sometimes it takes 10 years. But is there any advice you can give to other writers? You know, I mean, for example, Steve and I, getting your book actually made into a film? Personally, I think T.C. Boyle has the correct take on it for writers. You sell them your book for the highest amount of money you can get, and you say, invite me to the premiere. <laughs> and just walk it's away like, right or maybe it was who was it like Faulkner or someone said you know you you drive to the California border you throw your manuscript over the border they throw a bag of money back to, to your side and then you drive home and you just like stay out of it this character is a he's a hard rocker heavy metal guy did you debate about what music genre to, to set this world in? Or was it always like, no, no, he's got to be this guy. This is the character I want to write about. No, I always like, you know, I, there's a great movie called um, Some Kind of Monster, which is a documentary about Metallica. Yeah. And how they, they, could, they hated each other. So they bring in this psychiatrist to help them work together. And of course, by the end, they become a band again because they all hate the psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> it's, it's actually really fun. But you see these guys and like, I, you know, I don't really, except for the Lars and Hetfield, the singer... Yeah, I didn't know the names of the other guys in the band. And yet they have like, you know, $900 million in the bank and they live on horse farms in Napa and they're incredibly wealthy. And I just thought, that's the guy, but he's got to be like the bass player. It's got to be like, can you name the bass players of like Scorpions or even Van Halen and stuff? Most people can't unless they're big fans. Right. Or maybe you guys can. But, <laughs> Michael Anthony. Um, <laughs> see, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't um, in scorpions <laughs> <laughs> but 
You know what I mean? I, I didn't want like it to be the star. I wanted it to be like these guys who like, you know, they're part of the band and they're incredibly wealthy and pampered and all this stuff. And I just thought that was an interesting character to just basically have a beer goggled nitwit, you know, someone who's completely spoiled, doesn't know how to do anything except party and play the bass, have to do something like, like your typical action hero would have to do. To me, that's more fun to write. Your writing has been compared to James Elroy and Carl Hyacin, with several of your books combining elements of crime fiction and comedy. Is there a trick you've discovered for making dark situations funny? No, I, I'm just sort of mentally ill. Um, <laughs> I mean, dark situations are dark, right? And But if you hang out with police officers or detectives or pathologists or anyone who has to deal with dark stuff, they almost all have pretty good senses of humor because it's just a way to deal with it. I think that when things are really intense or really, you know, scary, you either crumble and cry or you make some wisecrack. I've just always been a wisecracker. So that's what, you know, I'm one of those guys that all through elementary school and high school, people were like, someday your smart mouth is going to land you in big trouble, young man, you know, and like, finally like, no, I managed to make a living out of having a smart mouth, so... Like, right on for the smart asses. <laughs> it's a career path. I wish I could say I was surprised that uh, Mark was a smart ass in school, but it turns out almost all the crime writers I know are smart asses, in including you, Eric. Well, I take second prize to you, sir. <laughs> that wasn't the comeback I was looking for. <laughs> I was supposed to say something smart assy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Was... The window was open, buddy. <laughs> Well, you know, Steve, lately I've had the pleasure of reading several crime novels from Australia. And so for our Unpanel segment this time, we decided to ask three different writers from Down Under, what makes a novel uniquely Australian? Hi, I'm Emma Viskich, author of Resurrection Bay and, and Fire Came Down. I think there are two things that make crime novels uniquely Australian. One is a sense of place and the other is a sense of humour. Australia is a very big and varied country, but pretty much anywhere you go, the landscape and the flora and fauna are out to kill you. So whether it's the drought, the flood, the landslides or the bushfires, um, there is a sense of danger in any of the settings. Even the cities have their own distinct personalities from the hot tropical corruption of Brisbane to the cold underworld connections of Melbourne. The sense of humour is a little bit harder to explain without having been on the receiving end, but pretty much all of the humour is based around being offensive. So the closer you are to someone, the more offensive you have to be in your banter with them. So two mates in a heartfelt moment won't be open and honest with each other. They will pretty much vie to be the most laid back and offensive they can. And those two things combined make for a, a pretty different type of novel from um, anywhere else in the world, really. Hi, my name is Ian Ryan. I'm a Melbourne-based crime fiction writer. My first novel was called Four Days, and my latest novel is The Student, published by uh, Bonnier Publishing Australia. The thing that makes a crime novel uniquely Australian is the dialogue. Australians fucking love swearing, uh, we love slang, 
we have a particular way of talking to one another that I think in any other part of the world, apart from maybe Ireland, would be considered coarse. Uh, the way that we address one another, you know, and if that's translated correctly into um, fiction, I mean, I can pick up a novel and immediately tell that it's written by an Australian. So that's the main one. Uh, the setting, of course, is is another. Uh, I think there's probably it's probably fair to say that there's more crime novels that are set in the heat in Australia than say in the snow, which is fair enough because it's hot here and it doesn't snow in very many places. My name is Andrew Netty, and I'm a crime writer based in Melbourne, Australia. I'm the author of two novels, Ghost Money and uh, Gunshine State. What makes a novel uniquely Australian is something I think is quite hard to answer. I think Australia's always had a bit of a cultural cringe as a result of its small population and its sort of sense of being dominated by the two major producers of uh, English language uh, print culture, US and UK. A lot of our crime fiction in the past, I think of pulp authors like Carter Brown, basically wrote what was faux Americana. They wrote, they were Australians writing stories set in New York and uh, Chicago PI stories that really played off that hard-boiled sort of US crime fiction heritage. What makes a novel really Australian is place, language, and a unique sense of Australian pathos. I think what makes a novel uniquely Australian is also a sense of not being afraid to go to some of the dark places in our history our relationship to the land and the fact that Australia is a convict country essentially. We were transported to Australia as convicts from Britain and Ireland and we took the country uh, by force from the local indigenous inhabitants and that's something that I think continues to reverberate very strongly in Australian history but it's not something that we really talk about a lot. Good Australian crime novels try and have a look at this. Wow, those are great answers. And as long as we had these three authors on the line from so far away, we wanted to ask them a little about their books. First up, we asked Emma Viskich about writing a series featuring a lead character who is mostly deaf. The protagonist of Resurrection Bay and, and Fire Came Down is Caleb Zellick, a fraud investigator who's profoundly deaf. And I didn't actually set out to write a deaf character. It was one of those things that happens sometimes when you're writing when a character just strides onto the page pretty much fully formed. In fact, it took me a little while to realise that Caleb was deaf. And what had happened was I had written into his character a girl I had gone to school with when I was about 10, around about the age that you start really realising that different people have different lives from you. And she, she made a huge impact on me and she's been writing her way into characters ever since, uh, through my primary school years, through my teenage years, and then into Caleb's character. And I thought that Caleb would make a fascinating investigator, having someone who couldn't hear, couldn't overhear clues, uh, wouldn't know what was happening behind him, I thought would make a, a great twist for the standard PI-type character. But the idea of writing a deaf character scared me so much that I actually put the manuscript away for about six months. I was just too scared to do anything about it. But Caleb's character kept coming back into my brain and I kept thinking about him and wondering what his life would be like and wondering how a crime novel without sound 
would come about. Um, so eventually I decided to experiment with a scene and that scene became a chapter and that chapter eventually became the whole book and as I got further and further into writing it and redrafting I began doing a lot of research. I ended up doing an online course in lip reading and then I went off and learnt Australian Sign Language, Auslan. So... Welcome to Writer Types, the podcast all about crime and mystery fiction. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon. Tell him who's on the show, Steve. Well, today on the show, we make sure to avoid the questions author Attica Locke doesn't want to answer. I am feeling quite litigious all of a sudden. <laughs> author Mark Haskell-Smith tells us why he agreed to come on Writer Types. I'm just sort of mentally ill. And Frank Zafiro explains why he co-wrote three novels with Eric. The guy pointed a gun at me and scared the shit out of me. All that, plus a trio of authors from the land down under, book reviews, and a very short story. But first, Steve, as we head into fall, it's a really busy time for both of us, right? Uh, absolutely. We're going to be posting this episode on Monday and then Wednesday of next week on September 27th. We are doing a crime quiz live at the last bookstore in Los Angeles. Those are always fun. We had such a blast the first time we did it. Yeah, and this time around, we're really thrilled to have Nadine Netman, Jordan Harper, and Harley Jane Kozak as our guests. And we're doing another crime quiz live at BoucherCon in Toronto on a Friday the 13th. That's going to be a scary one. And I'm really thrilled because we have an American, a Canadian, a Brit, and whatever the hell you and I are. And that's in addition to another noir at the bar that we're doing up in Northern California and a couple of other readings that we have coming up this fall. So it's a busy time to be you and I. Yes, it is. And I will also be at Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee in November. I'm so sorry I'm going to miss that with you, Steve, and with the Malmans who are going to be there also. But you and I will be together at BoucherCon in Toronto, Canada, where it turns out we are both nominated for an Anthony Award. So congratulations. Well, thank you, Eric. And you're up for Best Paperback Original for Leadfoot. Yes. And Best Anthology for the excellent collection Unloaded, which you edited. And which you have a story inside. So uh, I guess that's a, sort of a nomination for both of us on that one. Steve, of course, you're nominated in the Best Novella category for your novella Crosswise, which is excellent. I can highly recommend. And I am rooting for you. Does that mean I can count on your vote? I didn't say that. I said I'm rooting for you. Well, I'm just excited because we are absolutely going to be recording from the Anthony Awards brunch at the moment that you and I might win or most likely will lose. So <laughs> next month, <laughs> listeners will get to hear our screams of joy or our tears of sorrow. <laughs> be honest, if I lose, will you console me or are you just going to immediately mock me? <laughs> I may rush the mic and take it over and have a Kanye moment. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. I fully support this. I will not do the same for you, though. <laughs> I know, Eric. <laughs> I know. Who's first in the interview chairs today, Steve? First up is Mark Haskell-Smith, whose comic crime novel Salty was recently made into the film Gunshy, starring Antonio Banderas. We asked him what it was like to take a novel to the big screen. You know, it was a very peculiar experience uh, because I did it 10 years ago, right? So when the book first came out, the director came to me and said, I, I really like this book, you know, uh, but I want to do it independently. 
and I want you to write it, So, but I don't have any money. And the thing is, I said, well, I want a piñata filled with uh, Spanish doubloons or Krugerrands. And the director said, okay. And then the next day, a guy knocked on the door and handed me a magnum of Patron Gold tequila. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, fuck, I got to write this thing now. So the actual experience of it was really fun because uh, you've written the book and the book is done, right? It's like, that's my version. So I could play around and do like a version that could be the director's version. So it's kind of like retelling the story and revisiting characters who I really liked, but also playing with it in a different way. You know, everyone always has something to say about a book they love when it makes it to the big screen, like, oh, they left this part out or they didn't do that part right. But you got to be the architect of your own adaptation. So what's the story behind the change from the book where the main character's wife gets kidnapped in Thailand to then the movie, which is set in South America? So much stuff happens. It's completely out of your control. I think like a month before we were going to shoot or two months there were riots in Bangkok and it became like a security risk for the insurance, the bonding company. So then um, Antonio Banderas was like, well, I just did this movie in Chile with this whole company that they provide everything. Let's do it there. And so the director and the producers looked into it and they were like, yeah, I guess we're just change everything to Chile. There you go. <laughs> South America. I mean, it was really because of that. I mean, everyone wanted to do it in Thailand. We were set to do it in Thailand. And then, you know, and I think some of it is like you have big stars and things like that, and their managers suddenly go, well, I don't want you caught up in a riot. You need managers to tell you that? <laughs> uh, yeah, they're actors, man. Come on. <laughs> uh, so spoiled. How did Antonio Banderas get involved with the project? We had the budget, and then you have to go through the thing of finding stars. And, you know, for a while it was like, Nicolas Cage was interested in doing it. And then maybe it was Pierce Brosnan and, you know, it goes through this thing and it just, it's like, I don't know. It's like trying to go on a date with a glacier, you know, just like nothing happens. <laughs> and just like days and days go, years and years go by and like, did it move? Did, you know, we have the money. And um, I think someone finally said, uh, what about Banderas's manager read it, I think, and was like, hey, this could be good for him. He likes music. So then once he got involved, it was like it happened pretty fast. Of course, every writer wants to see their book make it to the big screen. I think most people don't realize that sometimes it takes 10 years. But is there any advice you can give to other writers? You know, I mean, for example, Steve and I, getting your book actually made into a film? Personally, I think T.C. Boyle has the correct take on it for writers. You sell them your book for the highest amount of money you can get, and you say, invite me to the premiere. <laughs> and just walk it's away like, right or maybe it was who was it like Faulkner or someone said you know you you drive to the California border you throw your manuscript over the border they throw a bag of money back to, to your side and then you drive home and you just like stay out of it this character is a he's a hard rocker heavy metal guy did you debate about what music genre to, to set this world in? Or was it always like, no, no, he's got to be this guy. This is the character I want to write about. No, I always like, you know, I, there's a great movie called um, Some Kind of Monster, which is a documentary about Metallica. Yeah. And how they, they, could, they hated each other. So they bring in this psychiatrist to help them work together. And of course, by the end, they become a band again because they all hate the psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> it's, it's actually really fun. But you see these guys and like, I, you know, I don't really, except for the Lars and Hetfield, the singer... Yeah, I didn't know the names of the other guys in the band. And yet they have like, 
you know, $900 million in the bank and they live on horse farms in Napa and they're incredibly wealthy. And I just thought that's the guy, but he's gotta be like the bass player. It's gotta be like, can you name the bass players of like Scorpions or even uh, Van Halen and stuff? Most people can't unless they're big fans. Right. Or maybe you guys can. But, <laughs> Michael Anthony. Um, <laughs> see, there you go. Uh, <laughs> he wasn't um, in Scorpions. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? I, I didn't want like it to be the star. I wanted it to be like these guys who like, you know, they're part of the band and they're incredibly wealthy and pampered and all this stuff. And I just thought that was an interesting character to just basically have a beer goggled nitwit, you know, someone who's completely spoiled, doesn't know how to do anything except party and play the bass have to do something like like your typical action hero would have to do to me that's more fun to write your writing has been compared to james elroy and carl hyacin with several of your books combining elements of crime fiction and comedy is there a trick you've discovered for making dark situations funny no i i'm just sort of mentally ill um <laughs> i mean dark situations are dark right and but if you hang out with police officers or detectives or pathologists or anyone who has to deal with dark stuff, they almost all have pretty good senses of humor because it's just a way to deal with it. I think that when things are really intense or really, you know, scary, you either crumble and cry or you make some wisecrack. I've just always been a wisecracker. So that's what, you know, I'm one of those guys that all through elementary school and high school, people were like, someday your smart mouth is going to land you in big trouble, young man, you know, and like, finally like, no, I managed to make a living out of having a smart mouth. So like right on for the smart asses. <laughs> it's a career path. I wish I could say I was surprised that uh, Mark was a smart ass in school, but it turns out almost all the crime writers I know are smart asses, in including you, Eric. Well, I take second prize to you, sir. That wasn't the comeback I was looking for. <laughs> I was supposed to say something smart-assy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. No. The window was open, buddy. <laughs> well, you know, Steve, lately I've had the pleasure of reading several crime novels from Australia. And so for our Unpanel segment this time, we decided to ask three different writers from Down Under, what makes a novel uniquely Australian? I'm Emma Viskich, author of Resurrection Bay and, and Fire Came Down. I think there are two things that make crime novels uniquely Australian. One is a sense of place and the other is a sense of humour. Australia is a very big and varied country, but pretty much anywhere you go, the landscape and the flora and fauna are out to kill you. So whether it's the drought, the flood, the landslides or the bushfires, um, there is a sense of danger in any of the settings. Even the cities have their own distinct personalities from the hot tropical corruption of Brisbane to the cold underworld connections of Melbourne. The sense of humour is a little bit harder to explain without having been on the receiving end, but pretty much all of the humour is based around being offensive. So the closer you are to someone, the more offensive you have to be in your banter with them. So two mates in a heartfelt moment won't be open and honest with each other. They will pretty much vie to be the most laid back and offensive they can. And those two things combined make for a, a pretty different type of novel from um, anywhere else in the world, really. 
Hi, my name is Ian Ryan. I'm a Melbourne-based crime fiction writer. My first novel was called Four Days, and my latest novel is The Student, published by uh, Bonnier Publishing Australia. The thing that makes a crime novel uniquely Australian is the dialogue. Australians fucking love swearing. Uh, we love slang. We have a particular way of talking to one another that I think in any other part of the world, apart from maybe Ireland, would be considered coarse. Uh, the way that we address one another, you know, and if that's translated correctly into um, fiction, I mean, I can pick up a novel and immediately tell that it's written by an Australian. So that's the main one. Uh, the setting, of course, is is another. Uh, I think there's probably it's probably fair to say that there's more crime novels that are set in the heat in Australia than say in the snow, which is fair enough because it's hot here and it doesn't snow in very many places. My name is Andrew Netty, and I'm a crime writer based in Melbourne, Australia. I'm the author of two novels: Ghost Money and uh, Gunshine State. What makes a novel uniquely Australian is something I think is quite hard to answer. I think Australia's always had a bit of a cultural cringe as a result of its small population and its sort of sense of being dominated by the two major producers of uh, English language uh, print culture, US and UK. A lot of our crime fiction in the past, I think of pulp authors like Carter Brown, basically wrote what was faux Americana. They wrote, they were Australians writing stories set in New York and uh, Chicago PI stories that really played off that hard-boiled sort of US crime fiction heritage. What makes a novel really Australian is place, language, and a unique sense of Australian pathos. I think what makes a novel uniquely Australian is also a sense of not being afraid to go to some of the dark places in our history our relationship to the land and the fact that Australia is a convict country essentially. We were transported to Australia as convicts from Britain and Ireland and we took the country uh, by force from the local indigenous inhabitants and that's something that I think continues to reverberate very strongly in Australian history but it's not something that we really talk about a lot. Good Australian crime novels try and have a look at this. Wow, those are great answers. And as long as we had these three authors on the line from so far away, we wanted to ask them a little about their books. First up, we asked Emma Viskich about writing a series featuring a lead character who is mostly deaf. The protagonist of Resurrection Bay and, and Fire Came Down is Caleb Zellick, a fraud investigator who's profoundly deaf. And I didn't actually set out to write a deaf character. It was one of those things that happens sometimes when you're writing when a character just strides onto the page pretty much fully formed. In fact, it took me a little while to realise that Caleb was deaf. And what had happened was I had written into his character a girl I had gone to school with when I was about 10, around about the age that you start really realising that different people have different lives from you. And she, she made a huge impact on me and she's been writing her way into characters ever since, uh, through my primary school years, through my teenage years, and then into Caleb's character. And I thought that Caleb would make a fascinating investigator, having someone who couldn't hear, couldn't overhear clues, uh, wouldn't know what was happening behind him, I thought would make a, a great twist for the standard PI-type character. But the idea of writing a deaf character scared me so much 
that I actually put the manuscript away for about six months. I was just too scared to do anything about it. But Caleb's character kept coming back into my brain and I kept thinking about him and wondering what his life would be like and wondering how a crime novel without sound would come about. Um, so eventually I decided to experiment with a scene and that scene became a chapter and that chapter eventually became the whole book and as I got further and further into writing it and redrafting I began doing a lot of research. I ended up doing an online course in lip reading and then I went off and learnt Australian Sign Language, Auslan. So Caleb became fluent in Auslan and I became somewhat adequate in Auslan at the same time. Next, Ian Ryan's latest, The Student, is another of his pitch black noir novels. So we wanted to know if Australia had a noir fiction tradition and if he's influenced by it. The answer to that is pretty easy. No and no. Uh, of course, I am absolutely influenced by Australian crime writers such as sort of Peter Temple and uh, Peter Doyle. I'm influenced by my friend Andrew Netty and his recent work uh, and so on. But no, I'm much more influenced by American noir writers like James Elroy, of course, the UK writer David Peace, and the Irish writer Ken Bruin. They're all my guys. Uh, and I think that you could kind of classify all of them almost as hard-boiled, right? So that's the sort of stuff I was drawing on. And there isn't a lot of hard-boiled Australian crime novels. There just isn't. Uh, the sort of novels that we produce here tend to be slightly more aspirational in terms of how they draw characters and places and Australian history into the narrative. They can be very dark, they can be very critical, but they don't sort of revel in the darkness of the Australian sort of psyche in the same way that, you know, James Orry does really obviously in something like American Tabloid or David Pease does in the Red Riding trilogy. And those, you know, they're absolutely my touch points. If you like those novels, then please read mine. Uh, that's all. Thanks for having me on the show. See ya. And finally, Andrew Nettie's novel, Gunshine State, is about a heist, a favorite subject of his, and we wanted to know why. Why do I love heist novels? I just think it's because they're such a, just such a terrific vehicle for tension and uh, crime, crime plots. Uh, my second novel, Gunshine State, is a crime novel set in um, Queensland, Melbourne and Thailand. And it's a, it's a heist story. The heist goes wrong. The heist always goes wrong. That's another thing that's so good about heist fiction. Even when the heist technically goes right, it goes wrong afterwards due to greed, fear, mistakes, technical problems, or just bad luck. And the endless combination of things that can go wrong in a heist, with the participants of a heist, endlessly fascinates me. And I suppose what I'm trying to do with uh, Gunshine State and with the sequel Orphans Road is try and put an Australian spin on the heist novel. It's something I've written about quite a lot on my website, popquarry.com. So if you want, to you want to check that out, please drop me a line. Well, I've really enjoyed the Australian novels that I've been reading recently. And it's just, it's really great to find a, a new group of writers with a different perspective. Uh, and I think American audiences are really gonna like these books. Well, you already know about my love for Northern European authors. So uh, I'm right there with you, Eric. 
And as you know, Steve, our next guest is author Frank Zafiro, who writes the River City series of police procedurals, along with several standalone noir novels. He's also a podcaster like us with his show Wrong Place, Right Crime. And he's co-authored several books, including three books that he and I have written together. There's The Backlist, The Shortlist, and coming next year is The Getaway List. But despite writing those books with one another, would you believe Frank and I have never actually spoken to each other? This entire relationship has happened over email. Well, we've got Frank on the line, so everyone can listen in to the first time that you two ever spoke. All right, so we are live, and I just uh, posted an invitation to Frank Zafiro to join this conversation with you and I, Steve. Now, his little icon just popped up. Are Frank and I about to meet for the first time? An historic moment. Oh, there it is. (laughs) Hi, Frank. Hey, Eric. How's it going, brother? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, man. So the first obvious question for this interview is why have we not done this sooner? (laughs) I have no idea because it it was working out so well before. Uh, Did we just jinx ourselves? Oh, no. Don't say that. (laughs) It's been three years, four years almost that, that we've been working together and yet have not seen a reason to take it beyond just email exchanges. Yeah, it's really bizarre. I tell people about it all the time. I tell people you're the nicest guy I never met. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve might have a few things to say about that. I actually think uh, I think you should try to keep it that way, Frank, because uh, in person, right, he's, sign just, it off. <laughs> he's just unbelievable. So, so Frank, what is it for you that uh, is so alluring about collaborating? You know, I, I never set out to be a, a collaborator and, and, and I ended up probably close to 50% of my books are, are collaborations. And, and I think that the reason it it's so appealing is that you write your segment, whatever that is, a chapter, several chapters, your character, however you're doing it, you send it to the other person. And when it comes back, you get to read it. You're reading your book for the first time. And, and there's also that continual energy that you get akin to when you sit down and have a cup of coffee with another writer and you, you knock ideas around and you kind of get jazzed up and you go back to your, your cave and you, you're all, you know, pumped about writing and you're right. Well, that happens every time a chapter comes back. It's a pretty special property. Have you ever had a situation where the tone uh, or your storytelling or your writing really didn't match up? No, I don't, I don't think so. Actually. I think, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the, the projects, the format that we used was the same format that Eric and I used where we each wrote a character and, and then the book was presented in, in alternating first person chapters. And so even if it didn't match up perfectly, you know, I mean, that's actually a good thing. It provides a, you know, some different voices for the, for the reader. I did do one with Larry Kelter where we are writing with a unified author voice, so to speak. And that was my biggest fear was it was going to sound, you know, schizophrenic or obviously being written by two different people. And, and uh, I was you know, gratified to discover at the end of it all, after the revision process, I found myself almost unable to pick out the parts that I wrote. You know, for I know for us, we knew each other's work. So it's not like, I know for me, I would never enter into a partnership without having an idea of, oh yeah, I think our voices will blend. Yeah, I think that's a danger. Like any relationship, you don't want to just blindly leap into it. Uh, you have to think about the quality aspect of it. I mean, you, you know, you want to write with somebody who's an, almost as good a writer as you are. <laughs> <laughs> 
I see how it is. <laughs> I've been really fortunate. I have not had a bad experience, and I've collaborated now with five different authors. They've all been different, but they've all been uh, really great experiences. So speaking of experiences, you write your River City series with great realism based on your own experiences as a career police officer. Was there one incident that made you say, you know, I have to write a book about this? No, there wasn't one incident uh, because I was already a writer when I became a cop. And so I kind of knew eventually that these experiences would, would end up at least providing the texture and the flavor and the backdrop for whatever I wrote about in crime fiction. I've tried to be really careful not to take more than maybe a cool turn of phrase or small little pieces and insert them in because, you know, you always run the risk of somebody getting their feelings hurt or, <laughs> you know. Have you ever had any experiences that you thought, well, okay, no one's even going to believe this. This is too ridiculous. Yeah, I, I had a guy, uh, we went on a call one time where uh, I'm walking down the hall, I looked to my left and this guy's pointing a shotgun at me through the uh, open bedroom door. So, you know, that was a nice experience. And so I'm already a little pissed because the guy pointed a gun at me and scared the shit out of me. And I stepped up and kicked the door really hard, knocked him back, and we pile through the door. And, uh, but his room was full of weapons, but, I mean, full of weapons. But oh. some of them were real and some of them were toys. So he had, like, plastic machine guns and plastic, you know, buoy knives. But then he had the real stuff, too. And the one he pointed at me was a real one, unfortunately. So uh, that was that was pretty lucky that he didn't didn't decide to pull the trigger that day. Wow, Steve, have anyone ever pulled a gun on you? Uh, yes, I've had a gun pulled on me before. Really? Yes. Oh, I'm yeah. the odd man out here. It's nothing to brag about. I'll tell you that. Oh, come on. <laughs> I think all of us are pretty conditioned to sort of Hollywood's version of what a hero is. I'm wondering if your career in law enforcement has sort of shaped a different version of heroism. That's a great question. And I think it has. Uh, definitely, um, I see heroes as being uh, always having human flaws. If you look at every one of the heroes that I've written, I think you could find some pretty strong flaws in each of them. Uh, and then I think there's a quiet heroism to that idea of, hey, day in and day out, I'm here, I go take care of this call, I answer this request for help, and it's a grind. But there's a quiet heroism to that because it takes uh, it takes tenacity and it takes uh, endurance. And so I've tried to inject that into some of the characters in the uh, in the procedurals, particularly. Now, I mean, those River City books, the, the the procedurals you're speaking of, is that definitely the ones that are kind of closest to your heart? Those are definitely the uh, kind of my flagship series for sure. The first novel I, I wrote was the first book in that series, and those characters are are pretty close to my heart for sure. Frank. Eric and I were the first ever authors to take the plunge into podcasting. The first two to ever do it. That's and true. then you copied our idea and we kind of want to call you to the carpet on that. Yeah, I definitely got the idea from you guys. It was this weird new concept that you pioneered. And, um, uh, but I did get excited about it after Writer Types came out. And what I, I dug about Writer Types is it, it seemed to me it was kind of one of those early morning drive sort of podcasts because you use a lot of humor and you have shorter segments and and that was really fun and I liked it but I didn't want to copy it I went the other direction and I thought you know I want to do almost like late night call-in radio uh, where you spend 40 minutes with the guest and you do a deeper dive and so 
Uh, that's that's really what what wrong place right crime is is more of that one author deep dive. And I got to say, you did come late to the party, but you bested us with the title of your podcast. I have to give credit to my wife Christy uh, for coming up with that. Uh, she's pretty brilliant in choosing husbands and podcast names. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> well done, Christy. Uh, what, we're all podcasters here, and um, we've all used our mouths to get ourselves in trouble on occasion. And I, I'm going to use this opportunity to ask you the burning question that I'm sure our listeners have. What's the worst part about working with Eric Beatner? Uh, is this like the interview question? Like, what's your biggest flaw? And then you have to turn it into something. Oh, I'm a workaholic. Quit, quit stalling, Frank. <laughs> I think the, the most important thing to keep in mind is that Eric does all the editing for the show. <laughs> well, the problem is he's an egomaniac, you know. That's all about him the whole time. And it's like, uh, you know, honestly, the most maddening thing about writing with Eric is the guy writes the cleanest first draft of ever seen. This is why I think he's so prolific though, because he doesn't have to spend time rewriting a book or, you know, twice. He just has to go through and do a copy edit and it's ready to go. Honestly, I hate revising so much that I I do as much groundwork ahead of time before I start typing to try to avoid it as, as much as possible. So I think if you let that fear or at least that just disdain for revising drive you that it yeah it helps your first draft that's my that's my advice to all the uh, young writers out there i gotta say eric he's a hell of a nice guy but you got off really easy on that last question should i bother asking you the same question or no you know my feelings eric <laughs> Well, I think it's time that we check in with some people that we talk to maybe a little too much. You must mean the Malmans. I do. On loan from Crime Spree Magazine, the Malmans are here for more book reviews and recommendations. All right, guys, we are thrilled as always to have our favorite reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman, here with us today. But before we get to their reviews this week, They've got some exciting publishing news of their own. Why don't you guys talk to us about that? Yeah, on October 19th, the Killing Melman anthology hits the stores and people can go buy it and it's going to be out in the wild. And it's 30 authors with one victim. The only requirement for any of the short stories in the anthology is someone by the name of Dan Melman. Hi. Has to die at some point. We don't care how, he just needs to die before the end of the short story. And what's really great about the anthology is all proceeds benefit the Upper Midwest National MS Society. So all book sales go towards a great cause. As if killing Dan was not cause enough. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great, guys. We're, we are thrilled for you. We're excited for the book and incredibly proud for both Steve and I to have stories uh, in the anthology. So thank you for including us. It's really a crime of passion project. Every cent all goes to MS. So it's something you can feel good about and you're gonna get 360 pages of, of uh, juicy depraved crime fiction with it. Well, that's great. I, I've always said that more people need to get the MS and really get on board with that. We need more MS in the, am I getting this no. right? Is that, no. No, I reverse that. I'm sorry. I'm, this is why we need the book like this to educate the public. Exactly. I thought you were just talking about a manuscript. Um, things got really dark really fast. Oh, now Dan's in publishing and he knows the lingo. Yeah. <laughs> now, another thing I want to tell you about that you were doing wrong before. Um, are you going to be reviewing your own book this week? Or what do you have for us? 
I'm not reviewing Killing Moment. I've already read it twice and it's great and everyone needs to read it. Until that comes out, I'm talking about March of Crime by Jess Lowry. Uh, it just came out on September 8th and aspiring PI Mira James has been living in rural Minnesota for the last 11 months and has found a corpse every month that she's been there. She's very aware that this is kind of a weird thing and, and she's uncomfortable with it, thinks it's very strange and it's not making her any friends with the local police chief because since she's come into town, he now has more murders to deal with. So in March of Crime, Mira finds a corpse in a life-size doll that has the body stuffed inside of it and she finds it at a local diner. <laughs> like so you do. These, these dolls are the are a hobby of one of the local senior citizens. So does the does the doll order the daily special and does the doll tip? Tips over. Tips over. Okay. <laughs> but what I really like about this book in particular, she's got some really, really good misdirection. You, you think you figure out who the, who did it very early on and you find out you're way off. It keeps you on your toes and it's a great read. It also has really fun characters. Uh, Mira James is best friend is an octogenarian by the name of Mrs. Burns. And she's who I want to be when I get to be a retiree and I get to be 80. She's just this like firecracker whip smart lady. And she's amazing. Um, and also the town mayor, a woman by the name of Kenny Rogers. She always has like these side jobs going and these like side businesses that she's working on and developing in every book. And in this one, she creates her own Minnesota sex phone line. And I'm not going to say anything more about that because you're going to be able to hear me blush through the podcast if I say any more. <laughs> and this is exactly why Jess Laurie is joining us for our crime quiz live at BaushaCon because of yes. these things that come out of her brain. Yeah, she's amazing. Oh, that uh, sounds good. And a, a worthy addition to a series that I know a lot of people are, are really in love with. Uh, so, Dan, what do you got? Yeah, top that, Dan. Clowns. That's oh. what I got. Just by chance that Stephen King adaptation, It, is big in the theaters right now. So by chance, I came prepared with Wonderland by Jennifer Hillier. Oh. So this is uh, a brand new to me author. Wonderland takes place at a fictitious amusement park in Seaside, Washington, where uh, there's a series of uh, missing teenage boys. Murders start happening. Bodies start showing up. And it, it all centers around the clown museum at this amusement park. I had a really good time reading this book. Um, it was billed as this juicy, stay up late, slasher thriller, everything. I was pleasantly surprised. It's much more intellectual than that. Um, it was a very slow burn. Centers around the whole history of the town. Also with some nice comparisons to Stephen King. But it's a really good story. And it actually has kind of a YA uh, tilt to it as well. Really strong um, teenage girl protagonist. But there's some there's some juicy, naughty bits in there as well. Um, I really enjoyed this book. In reading Wonderland, did you come up with a clown name for yourself besides Dan Melman? <laughs> Hobo Flappy Shoes. That's <laughs> Hobo Flappy Shoes. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Floppy Shoes. <laughs> Hobo Floppy Shoes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and no, it, it's never just Hobo. It's Mr. <laughs> Flappy Shoes. Mr. Floppy Shoes. That better make the final cut. <laughs> oh, it's all staying in. Well, getting your book compared to Stephen King is high praise for an author. Jennifer ought to be pleased. Next up, we have a flash fiction piece by Gary Duncan, author of the short story collection, You're Not Supposed to Cry. 
This reading's a little different than our usual short stories because it isn't read by the author. This time around, Gary's publisher, Vagabond Voices, gave us a pre-recorded version read by Stuart Innes. Uncle Colin Uncle Colin died while we were having pudding. Not a squeak, just toppled forward, face first, into his plum crumble. I think Uncle Colin just died, I said. Mum and Dad looked at Uncle Colin, then at each other. I got up and had a closer look. Maybe he's just sleeping, I said. I felt for a pulse and prodded him. Definitely dead, I said, and sat back down. Maybe they were off, Dad said. The plums? Oh, I don't think so, Mum said. I only just bought them yesterday. On sale, buy one, get one free. Dad got up and poured himself another coffee from the pot. We should probably do something with him, he said. Mum nodded. Uncle Colin was her brother and they'd been close once, but that was a long time ago. Maybe he was allergic, Dad said, to plums. Can you be allergic to plums? Mum asked. Dad shrugged. Maybe it was his ticker, I said. How old was he, Mum? Mum thought about it for a bit. 58, I think, or 59, something like that. We buried him in the back garden next to the cabbages. You sure he was dead? Mum asked later, settling down for the late news. Yes, I'm pretty sure, I said. I got up, looked out the window into the darkness. If he wasn't, I reckon he is now. Quite a variety of voices we've had on this episode, Eric. We might as well take it to Texas while we're at it. Yeah, might as well. Well, although she lives in Los Angeles now, best-selling author Attica Locke is a Texas native who writes about the Lone Star State in many of her novels, including the brand new Bluebird, Bluebird. So, Attica, your new book takes place in the town of Lark, Texas, which is in East Texas, which I know that's where you're from, but... Other than that being sort of your background, why is it important for the novel to be set in East Texas? Well, I very much, and I'm to say I'm from East Texas is almost not quite fair because I'm from Houston. But my family, like all my family roots, you know, going back to slavery, everyone on my mom's side and my dad's side, they're all from towns along Highway 59. So I guess part of it was just I wanted to write about home and what felt like home to me. Um, and I also just wanted to show a side of Texas that people don't always think of because we typically think of like the dusty Southwest and big sky country and all of this, whereas this is really perfect for crime stories. It's it's called the big thicket. It's like full of pine forests and creeks and bayous and Spanish moss on some of the trees. It's just really evocative and rich and interesting. So if Bluebird, Bluebird had a soundtrack to it, what's playing? Is it mostly Texas blues? It is in a little country. It is mostly Texas blues, but a little Hank Williams, a little Johnny Cash, a little Merle Haggard, um, certainly Charlie Pride. So yeah, it, music plays a huge part in the setting of the tone of the world, but also it's actually a part of the plot. And do, are you listening to this kind of stuff while you're writing to get inspired? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, I, I make a playlist for every book. And my feeling is that when you um, make the playlist, you can almost create a Pavlovian response within yourself. If you start listening to it while you're thinking about the book, while you're starting to do notes, 
at a certain point you have turned the music on and you just kind of, your heart kind of just opens up. Like you just, it gets you there faster. In the course of writing Bluebird, Bluebird, who's an artist that you didn't previously listen to that you're now a fan of? I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know Little Milton. Oh. I didn't know that guy at all. And so I discovered him when I was like looking. I just needed my playlist to be longer. Otherwise, I'd be listening to the same 50 songs over and over again. So I started really looking more deep, like expanding songs that people already admired, like Freddie King and, and Johnny Taylor and um, Clarence Gaymouth Brown. I tried to like expand what I had, but then I was trying to find new voices too. The main character in, in Bluebird, Bluebird, Darren, he wears a badge. But, I mean, ultimately, is his badge an asset or a liability to him? I think that is the question of the entire series. Uh-huh. That, that's really at the heart of it. And I think he sometimes is not quite sure himself. I think that the hope for him, I think the reason that he wears the badge is the hope that in his hands, it can be um, a greater tool for justice. Um, and I think that there are other times when we, when following the rules of law enforcement prevents him from, I think, reaching for the higher moral victory. So I think he feels both emboldened by it, but also sometimes hampered by the badge. So let's dig into the title of the book really quickly. Why not just one bluebird? (laughs) It's actually from a John Lee Hooker song that is only called Bluebird. But when he sings it, the line is, Bluebird, Bluebird, please take this letter down south for me. And it comes on the jukebox at a, in, in this cafe that is highly featured in the book at a very um, pivotal moment. And it just seemed to kind of fit. It just seemed to kind of fit. I, Eric, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to really want to hang out with Attica in East Texas, like in a bar <laughs> with a great jukebox and listen to some music. Seriously, I, I would go on that trip. <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up around blues and barbecue, and that's just kind of my whole where I'm from. Yeah. So let's make the transition from Texas to Hollywood at this point. You recently wrapped up a gig writing for a little TV show called Empire. Right. And what Eric and I want to know is, is Cookie as much fun to write for as it seems? It's fun to write for her, but it's more fun to get on set and watch Taraji do what she does. Oh, wow. I will just flat out admit all of, most of the best fucking lines, excuse my, we can curse on this. Oh, yeah. It's highly encouraged. Okay, good. (laughs) Then most of the best fucking lines on the show are ad-libs between her and Terrence. Really? And they've been friends for a very long time. And so we end up capturing a lot of just stuff that happens at the end of takes. I have such a crush on her. I, I will admit it. Oh, uh, she's. I'm. I'm gonna go with you then because she's pretty sexy and she's pretty funny, and pretty down to earth. Now, if if you go from the kind of melodrama of a show like Empire, it's very different from the sort of grounded realism in your novels. Do you think it's important for a writer to be able to play kind of both sides of the fence, or to really to be able to change up their their writing voice a little bit? No, I think a writer should do whatever makes him or her happy. I am sometimes distressed by the fact that I can do both because sometimes it makes me feel like I should just pick one. Like going back and forth is not always easy. I do it because I actually like them both. And so now I'm trying to find a way to have both of these loves in my life. But speaking of Los Angeles, you've actually said that you're afraid to write about Los Angeles, even though you've been here for 20 years. So can you explain that fear to Eric and I? 
Well, I have, there are a lot of little pockets of things I'm afraid to write. I'm afraid to write short stories. I'm afraid to write in first person. I'm afraid to write essays. I, I have a ton of a list of stuff I'm afraid to write. The amount of like authority I feel over Texas is just high. I just feel the absolute personal permission to write about Texas. Whereas I feel a little bit when I think about writing about California, like who am I? I mean, I guess if I wrote something contemporary, but I've always wanted to write a novel about California in the 70s, and I was not here. And so there's just a fear that I'll get it wrong. I think it's out of respect for regional storytelling, and I think I would just never want to get it wrong. You've done a lot of interviews about these books, and I think a lot of the interviews end up focusing a little bit on on the social aspect of, of mm-hmm. your books and, and the race aspects of your mm-hmm. books, which are important, obviously, but... Is there any part that that you think gets overlooked about your novels? I think something that I do well and that I love is I think that my tertiary characters are very well painted and funny. And I think nobody talks about the fact that there is a lot of humor in my books, that they seem on the surface to be so incredibly serious. And I remember when I met somebody at the Texas Book Festival and after hearing me talk, he was like, but you're just so funny. I thought you would be so angry. (laughs) And is that very intentional? Like you're looking for a moment to to change up the pace or change up the feeling? I need a little comic relief here. Is that intentional? No, I just like writing about, I, I, to me, the humor is coming out of the specificity of the character. Uh, and so I try to let the humor come from the oddballness of the actual person. And writing about the South, you get a lot of oddball, tertiary characters <laughs> just roaming the streets. Speaking about your characters, you write about a character named Jay Porter in books like Blackwater Rising and Pleasantville. Uh, Eric and I have a friend named Joe Clifford who also writes a series about a character named Jay Porter. And we're wondering if we can encourage you to sue him. (laughs) Wait, but which came first? Yours. Yours. Blackwater Rising was published first. Uh oh. (laughs) I am feeling quite litigious all of a sudden. Joe, you've been warned. (laughs) Well, another good show, Steve. What have we learned? We learned from Mark Haskell-Smith that being a smartass is a viable career path. And Frank Zafiro taught us the trick to finding a co-writer is to find someone who's almost as good as you. And Attica Locke taught us she will sue you if you steal one of her characters, even if it's by accident. Well, that does it for this month. We'd like to thank all of our guests and contributors for joining us. Next month, we'll be bringing you an episode recorded entirely on location from BoucherCon in Toronto, Canada. And we'll see if Steve and I can win an Anthony Award. And when we don't, you can see live video of us on Facebook and Twitter crying our eyes out. And don't forget to rate us in the iTunes store or on Stitcher and subscribe if you like what you hear. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. As always, you can find out more about Steve's books at swloudon.com. And you can find out about Eric's books at ericbeatner.com. Join us again on Writer Types. Thanks for listening. <laughs>